also have a, a mystery with a big twist in your story. And the problem about mysteries with a big twist is we can't really talk about the twist because you then spoil the plot. But I, what I can ask is, did you know this from the outset or was this something that you realised was necessary as part of your writing pro process, somewhere in the midpoint of your outline doc that you were doing? Yeah. The, the big twist is actually the starting point the starting point of the whole story okay that right. was that that secret was the thing that i knew that the book was actually going to be about um and i don't think it's giving away too much to say that the book is fundamentally about identity you know yeah and i think you, it's going to be really it? really popular with science fiction fans that twist it's you know i can just see it really appealing anyway we we, we really mustn't give it away yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but this is, yeah, there is a, yes, there is, I, you know, and, and the thing is one of the challenges that I had and something that I went back and forth with my, with my editor with during the editing process on this book was making sure that all the characters were behaving properly for who they are and what their background is. And when, when you have a character whose background is hidden, um, I actually had my had my editor saying, well, you know, this character would never say that. And I go, well, actually, if you knew that when you get to the end of the book, you'll understand why they yeah. did. So and she did. She came to the end of the book and said, wow, okay. So then the two of us worked together to try to make that character feel very much to feel very much themselves without betraying the without betraying the secret. You know, to to have them to have them be all of the people that they are um because because this is this is about identity and 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 um i mean i say i say right on right on the my webpage about the book you, you know in a in a world where in a world where minds can be copied what does it mean to be me to be quote me unquote um and so um so yeah so there uh, and and i really do believe that i did not hide anything that the all of the pieces are right there in plain sight. It's just that until you know what's really happening, you will never spot them. At least if I done if I done my job right, you will never spot them. So I, I really don't want to rest too long on this because it would be a shame to start the book with too many suspicions. So everybody, wipe that from your minds when you read the Kuiper Belt job. Just mm -hmm. go in innocent and enjoy yeah. the ride because I think you'll enjoy the twist all the more. So um, we will also, the information about your book tour for those of the listeners in America, um, if we put a link to your website, is will they find information about where you're going to be? Um, yeah, go to my website and click on About Me at the top. Um, one, of the, one of the options on the About Me menu is upcoming appearances. Brilliant. Okay, so so I will be, I'll be in Chicago, San Diego, Baltimore, uh, Portland, and uh, Seattle. Um, and I think, oh, and San Francisco uh, in early 2024. Okay, so that's big cities, hopefully one near some of our listeners. So, David, we mentioned that you've been um, writing since 2000, thereabouts, um, and you've got an overview of the role of science fiction and where it fits within fantasy. What do you think its place is now? So we had the Pulp Fiction era of the 20s and 30s where it was a cheap entertainment what do you think's happened to science fiction? And of course, we've now got the rise of TV versions and film versions to sort of thicken up the public understanding of what science fiction is about. What do you think? So 
I've been I've been a science fiction reader since I was a since I was a teenager. You know, my my formative experiences are the early space age. Um, you know, I was born at right around the time the first Mercury, uh, the first Mercury capsules went up. I was I was absolutely riveted uh, to the Apollo missions to the moon. Um, I followed, uh, you, you know, the, the, the space, the space shuttle, all of the all of the real, you know, real science space adventure of the 1960s and 70s um, it was, is, is key to my personal identity. Um, and so I have but. As somebody who's been in the science fiction field as a reader and then as a writer since the 1960s, I've seen science fiction change quite a bit. And furthermore, I have a lot of, uh, you know, I know a lot about the history of science fiction going back to the 20s and 30s. So I've seen how science fiction exists as part of mainstream culture. And over the past 50, 60 years, science fiction has grown from being a a thing that people would look down upon that that you would literally like if you were reading a science fiction magazine on the subway you would you would hide it behind a newspaper because you didn't want people to know you were reading that sci-fi crap that if you if you told teenage me in 19 in 1975 so before star wars came out um i was a you know, i was i was a trekkie you know, you know i was i was a fan of star trek beginning beginning with uh with the uh with the beginning of star trek in 1966 or 7 um and so if you told teenage me that you're going to be able to stand on on a street corner in 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 any town in the world and see like maybe one out of three, one out of four people walking by is wearing a t-shirt with a science fiction TV show on it. I would, I would, I would never have believed that. That science fiction has swallowed pop culture. And so what that means is, is that so much of our pop culture, things that in people today don't understand just how dominant Westerns were in the 1950s. Um, that in the 1950s, literally every other TV show was a Western. Um, and there's a reason that Star Trek 1966 starts off with the lines, space, the final frontier. Mm. Star Trek was explicitly pitched to the networks as wagon train in space. That Westerns were so dominant and science fiction has grown up to the point that it is now you know, it is now that dominant in culture that science fiction and especially superheroes are so dominant in culture that basically science fiction is pop culture. Look at um, San Diego Comic-Con. You know, when I was a teenager, Comic-Cons was a little thing that would, that you'd have, you know, you'd have at some hotel where you would go and you would, you would, you know, trade old comic books with your other comic book fans. San Diego Comic-Con is the biggest convention in San Diego, which is the biggest convention town in the country. Okay, San Diego Comic Con is huge. Comics and science fiction are huge business. They basically become our pop culture, and it is fascinating to me, as somebody who has lived through all of this and 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 also has a lot of information about what happened before I was born, to see how science fiction and wider pop culture have kind of destroyed each other, um, because science fiction used to be the idea that. Oh, anybody that reads science fiction has a forward-thinking mind, and and this is some this is somebody who obviously has has thought about the future and and will you know and will have some ideas about what's going to happen next. 
that's been completely destroyed because just about everybody's a science fiction reader or watcher now. You know, just about everybody watches science fiction. There are when I was a kid, you know, we had we had one science fiction TV show on on TV at a time, if that. I mean, I remember when um Gene Roddenberry uh, came to, I believe it was ABC, uh, with his idea for Star Trek. And they listened to him and they said, sorry, we've already got a science fiction TV show. It's called Lost in Space. Okay. That the idea that there was, when I was a kid, there was only one science fiction television television show at a time. Now, admittedly, we have many more TV shows, uh, what with streaming and all. But still, the number of different simultaneous science fiction TV shows, movie series, massively popular um, Game of Thrones, you know, massive international bestseller. Uh, Terry Pratchett, largest selling author, period, in the UK. You know, that science fiction and fantasy have dominated our pop culture landscape. Um, And so in some ways, this is great because it gets science fiction concepts that I think are important for people into the into the global conversation and in some ways it's terrible because it's turned science fiction into just entertainment um that that science fiction has been dumbed down by becoming pop culture as opposed to the days when uh we would say it's a it's a proud and lonely thing to be a fan that back in those days if you met a person and you, you just happen to meet a person and you start talking oh you read science fiction well then you knew something about that person um and these days it still tells you something, but not as much as it used to. I was thinking as you were talking about the difference um, over in the UK, because we had, we obviously imported Star Trek and I can remember it as one of the first programs I saw in color mm-hmm. um, it, because of the strong, the shirt colors. I, I yes. vividly remember that. And um, that is of course exactly why they have those strong shirt colors because it was a very new technology. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it makes it perfect sense. But we also had Doctor Who, which mm-hmm. is a, a a particular British take on science fiction, I think, in the way it's conceived. Yeah, no, um, no Doctor so British. We had a, a... Have you heard of Blake Seven? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a really traumatising experience of my um, of my youth because it's a very daring programme. Again, yeah. I've got the end. It's so dark. It's, it's so very, very dark. I, there's never there's never been a mainstream television series. Uh, there's never been a mainstream science fiction television series as dark as Blake Seven, at least not until like the late 2010s. Yeah, I think people think they're being very forward thinking now to sort of do these sort of cynical programs, but it's been done. The 70s were yeah. there, you know. Yeah, and of course, you know, Blake's Blake Seven, like Firefly, like the Kuiper Belt job, is a story of found family. Yes, there is. There is actually. You're right. Yeah, the desperados. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful stuff. Um, So I was interested. You're saying how science fiction has swallowed up popular culture, and I think if you include superheroes in that, that's absolutely true, isn't it? And of course, you can. But do you think um, the science fiction of the the type of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. in particular, while I have this sort of mixed feeling. I love Star Trek, but there's this side of Star Trek where it's exploring important themes like diversity. I can remember in the, um, the Next Generation, there was a series about whether or not the warp drive was actually damaging the environment of space. They're very sort of switched on to mm-hmm. you know, issues we're facing about our present. 
But there's also this promise that, don't worry, guys, in the future, we'll be able to leap from planet to planet without too much trouble. There will be a federation. There's a sort of imaginatively paving the way. And I always think of that when I see those T-shirts saying there's no planet B. Right. So do you think there's a possibility that science fiction is actually blunting our edge understanding things like the climate crisis? There's no question in my mind um, that a lot of people, and here I'm, I'm going to specifically call out Elon Musk, are betting the farm on there being a planet B. You know, just saying, oh, we'll fix, we'll fix this problem. You, you, you know, we'll, we fix the hole in the ozone layer. We'll fix climate change. Um, and I think that level of naive techno optimism is related to the science fiction mindset. But I think these people would be having these same thoughts even if there hadn't, even if there were no such thing as science fiction. You know, that there's always going to be. Uh, there, there's right now, right now in my in my social media sphere, there's a lot of uh, discussion about uh, Mark Andreessen um, has published an essay just in the past week um, in which he identifies basically the humanities as the enemy, um, saying that, that all these all these people putting all these these safety restrictions on our technologies, you know, you know, they're just trying to stifle innovation. And it's like no, and the thing is. I think he would have that attitude even if that even if that wasn't science fiction. He certainly doesn't reference science fiction explicitly. He's he's got that same technology that naive techno optimism that you had in the railroad barons of the 1880s. You know that there has all there has always been this idea since we entered the modern world in say the enlightenment say okay uh, we're going back to then 18th century yeah so since the enlightenment definitely since the enlightenment possibly going far as as far back as the renaissance we have this idea that human ingenuity will be capable of solving any problem uh renaissance the renaissance was was all about recovering what had been lost from greece and rome and then as you go into the Enlightenment, then it becomes more along the lines of, okay, we've got that. Now let's see what we can build on it. So that naive techno-optimism is something that science fiction is part of that, but I would not say that we can lay the blame on science fiction. No, no I mean, because there's obviously the, the form of science fiction, which warns absolutely against the the, the possible crisis we're heading towards. There's plenty yeah. well, of those. And- and the thing is, is that science fiction, you know, science fiction is a tool like any other, um, that science fiction has definitely been used as a way of trying to get people to settle down and not worry about the climate crisis. But science fiction, science fiction is both optimistic and pessimistic. It's a way of saying, I mean, literally, you know, Thomas More's Utopia of 1520, I think it was, you know, could be considered uh, an early work of science fiction. You know, the idea that science fiction can show, look, we could do this, but you look at Brave New World, you look at 1984, you look at um, at Neuromancer, you know, these are the science fiction futures of, oh my God, look at this horrible thing that might happen. And science fiction has always been a literature that has both of those arrows in its quiver, both and and any individual work is going to tend to be mostly pessimistic or mostly optimistic. Um, and actually, every every utopia is somebody every utopia is somebody's dystopia. You, you know, yeah. everybody 
uh, you know, all utopias, except for there are people, there are people like like Plato who have who have created utopias that are purely didactic and not intended to entertain or warn. But I'd say that most science fictional utopias, certainly in the 20th century and beyond, are also cautionary tales. You know, look at Brave New World. Brave New World is a world in which disease has been eliminated and everybody is born to be perfectly suited to their existence. Brave New World is, of course, a dystopia. And into this brave new world, we bring a 20th century man, uh, somebody who, somebody from uh, a primitive from outside of this culture. And through his eyes, we see how deadening and um, and dystopian this utopia actually is. And I think most science fictional utopias in the 20th century and beyond are also cautionary tales because every utopia is somebody else's dystopia. So, David, do you have a favorite? Um film in this genre because we uh, or movie as i should say as you're an american but do you have one which um you think is your for some reason is at a peak of a science fiction portrayal you know probably the one that i've rewatched the most times is blade runner i love um, that death um one of the things about it is the fact that it was one of the very first movies to portray a future in which the pieces of the past are still visible. Up until Blade Runner, whenever you saw a science fictional city, it would be this, this shining city on a hill with all these, these beautiful, shiny buildings and flying cars. And there was no sense of the fact that this was a city that was built on the bones of earlier cities, which was in turn built on the bones of earlier cities. Um, I mean, you can't... This, this shining science fiction city is very much an American concept. If you go to Europe, you can't, you can't walk down yeah. the street with, yeah. without, oh, there's a, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, 21st, 21st century Chinese cafe uh, built in a Victorian building, which is in turn built on the foundations of a Roman temple. Um, you don't see that as much in America. And Blade Runner was one of the first to really explicitly do that, that, Blade Runner has a layered aesthetic where even even the main character's car, you know, is a 10 year old model with new solar panels bolted on the top. Mm. Um, see it just briefly, but everything in that movie has that. Um, oh, there's a there's a specific word that the production designer used that I'm failing to recall, but it's something about layering something about how. Um, and by the way, if it's not, you look, it's not um, palimpsest, is it? Uh, it is not palimpsest, but it's because something. Little, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that um, if you actually if you know Los Angeles and you look at Brain Runner, you can very clearly see 20th century and even 18th century, uh, 19th century Los Angeles under the the neon. Um, huh. There's a uh, okay. So I I wrote an essay a long time ago about uh, the climax of Blade Runner takes place um, was filmed in and takes place in. Um, a building called the Bradbury Building, which is an, a building that exists in Los Angeles today. The Bradbury Building is a visually fascinating building, and a lot of movies have been filmed there because it is so gorgeous. Um, but the Bradbury Building was built in the late 1800s um, by somebody who was a fan of a book called Looking Backward. Looking Backward, Looking Backward was a utopian um, a, a didactic utopian book of the 1800s, uh, which was, it was written as 
uh, you know, some guy fell asleep for a long time and woke up in the far future and look at this marvelous utopia. Okay. So it was not, it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't a very plot or character heavy book. It was all about the ideas. It was a socialist utopia, but there were these looking backward clubs uh, in a lot of U.S. cities uh, where they said, you know, hey, you know, this is this is a cool idea. Let's see if we can actually do this. So the guy that the guy that uh, the real estate developer that had the Bradbury building built was a member of one of these clubs. And he said, let us build a building in the utopian spirit of this book. Uh, so he hired his brother-in-law to design the building. This guy only ever only ever built one. This this architect only ever actually had constructed one building in his entire lifetime and he claimed to have gotten the ideas from the building for the yeah he claimed to have gotten the ideas for the building from his late brother who had died quite young so he got the idea in a seance f- to design a building based on a utopian novel and it's a beautiful building i've i've been there it's a gorgeous gorgeous building it's got this marvelous glass topped atrium uh there's a shot in blade runner um where roy betty looks up and sees a a blimp going by overhead with the with the the, the searchlights coming down through the glass ceiling and the idea that you'd have this this atrium filled with light with a glass ceiling to let the sunlight in that was completely unheard of in the 1880s when that when that building was built and i think it's that's why it's been used in so many movies and i don't know that they specifically chose it for blade runner but i do know that they specifically refer to the bradbury building i think they even use the, the i think the words bradbury building even appear in dialogue and there's a uh, the front of that building has a couple of twisted columns very distinctive and you can see them the actual columns in that shot were a set because they didn't have the rights to shoot on the outside of the building but they did shoot the inside um so anyway I do love I do love Blade I do love Blade Runner and I do love the the layered aesthetic of both its visual aesthetic and also its its psychological aesthetic because it's all about questions of when you add on to humanity what do you have you, you know what what can you indeed replace a human being yeah it's a, and also it's quite fascinating the difference between the film and the do androids dream of electric sheep version, which is like the 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 novella sequel idea for it? So it's definitely worth reading one and watching the other and seeing it's what you think. Of, it's kind of astonishing that Philip K. Dick is like one of the most successful writers in history in terms of having his books turn into turned into movies and TV shows, and almost none of the adaptations have anything to do with the original book. Yeah, they are worlds apart. You know, quite literally. Yeah. yeah. So um, you've told us uh, along the way some of the places that we might want to read and things we want to look at, but do you have one um, good read that you want to, other than your own books, obviously, uh, that you'd suggest people go and look to? You mentioned some contemporary writers that you're promoting. Is there only one bet- between them that you'd like to pick out and suggest we pick up and read? Um, I'm going to call out The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. Um, it is... I mean, I did I did some what I consider stunt writing in the Kuiper Belt job. The fifth season leaves that in the dust. It is an amazing piece of writing, and and uh, okay, and I, I don't I'm not going to give you any more spoilers than that. Read carefully. Um, and another one that I can really recommend is called uh, the Lady Astronaut. No, it's the Lady Astronaut series by um, 
by Mary Robinette Kowal, and I'm suddenly blanking on the title of the first book in the series uh, because there was a there was a short story called The Lady Astronaut of Mars, uh, which she eventually adapted into a book. I'm sorry, I, I I do not recall I do not recall the title of the book. You can put but it. But that in should sense. be enough for us to find it. And when I Mary do, Rob- I'll I'll find the Mary Robinette Kowal, Mary Robinette Kowal Lady Astronaut series. Yeah. Thank you, David. And just to round up today's fascinating discussion, I'm certainly fascinated by this looking backwards movement in the uh, um, in the 19th century, which I had no idea about. Um, we always end with a, where in all the fantasy world is the best place for something. We've done things like the best forest, the best in the best, I know, best place to be a musician, that kind of thing. Um, but in honor of your opening few moves in your book, I thought we could do where is where in all the fantasy world is the best place to go to a casino because mm. actually casinos crop up a lot in science fiction which is not unconnected to the fact that it's come out of the western genre mm-hmm. indeed because there is definitely a sort of growth out of the the, the old bar scene in a western so if you've yeah. got a casino that you'd like to walk into the first one that comes to mind is the casino in the most recent Star Wars trilogy, I think in the second the second movie of the Ray trilogy. Um that movie I find kind of weak. Um and that that scene actually in terms of structure and plot is it le- leaves much to be desired, but the visuals are phenomenal. Um and uh the, I mean I'm thinking and, and you know, you think about you think about casinos. I'm thinking of Ocean's Eleven, uh, which, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna claim that Ocean's Eleven is science fiction because it is fiction that depends upon technology. Uh, okay, you're expanding the why going, not? going going to adopt Ocean's Eleven into the into the science fiction genre. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of casinos and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, casino heists uh, in science fiction. So so yeah, um, but. Unfortunately, at the moment, the best best science fiction casino I can think of is the one in the Kuiper Belt job. But yes, of course. That. Yeah, it's an you excellent casino. Nice and yeah. grudgy and full of danger. Um, yes. I think, personally, I'd we've been talking about Star Trek. I think I'd quite like to go to a Star Trek uh, casino, though it might be quite fun to go to the Galaxy Quest version of it. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, because yeah. I, I was going to say that my favourite science fiction film is, oddly, Galaxy Quest, because it's it matches... It manages both to be a homage and a sort of spoof, but a very respectful spoof. And it's it, if you're a science fiction fan, it manages to both gently mock you and reassure you <laughs> at the same time, which is a great. It's a great. loving. It's a loving parody. Is, yeah. Is, and yeah, there's a there's a great well there's a great casino on Deep Space Nine. Uh, there's a there's a great casino um, in uh, on Babylon Five. Um, you know, the, the, interestingly, you've got to get people, you've got to get a sufficient mass of people together in order to support a casino. Yeah. I wouldn't mind one on the holodeck if I get to hang out with a crew. I mean, probably next generation crew. Yeah. Holodecks can be dangerous places. Be aware. Yeah. Thank you so much, David, for spending your time um, with us today. And just to say again, for everyone who's listening, David's new book is called The Kuiper Belt Job. And it's out imminently, so do pre-order it now. And uh, some of you might be able to join David on his book tour as well. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. 
Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. <laughs>